The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with Bruce Barquette. Hope everyone is doing well um, and not mourning <laughs> the loss of the uh, Eagles too badly. We won't the, talk football. We'll, we'll talk crime. We're, we're going to talk football a little bit. We're going to absolutely talk football a little bit. Uh, as you know, my uh i'm a lifelong cowboy fan um, and i say lifelong is a long life and i've been a cowboy fan for all of it um my son however for reasons that aren't entirely clear one he's only 12 hey charlie shout out to you uh is a diehard eagle fan and i know that you're from the main line and a big eagle fan from philadelphia and i would recommend that we indict the ref who threw that flag last night uh, because he ruined the game, ruined it entirely. And that's not because the Eagles lost it just because the Eagles lost. It's because the game should not have ended that way. The chiefs and the Eagles fought back and forth all day, all day long. And it should not have been handed to the chiefs on a silver platter. And that's what happened. It was a crime my poor son devastated and he has a very good friend who is a chiefs fan last week they watched the chiefs and the eagles playing not last week but two weeks ago the chiefs and the eagles play in the championship games on a zoom call with each other and i've told my son he's got to call his friend and congratulate him and he's resisting that but uh he'll eventually do the right thing i am sure um I hated watching it, given what happened. So that's my take on the football game. And we can move on to crime and justice, real crimes, not crimes committed by Where, When the referee, a.k.a. the judge, makes the wrong call, you can actually appeal it um, and, and uh, with, with due process, right? Um, let's talk serious here for a moment. Yeah, we're going to go from frivolous For, for to- 20 minutes, Uh Um, New York state, a lot of people don't understand this understandably because it's confusing. And, and so is all the ways that federal law intersects with state law, but New York state doesn't have the death penalty. It hasn't had the death penalty since when 2004, 2005. Well, actually, and it's a good, it's good that you bring that up. New York state enacted a death penalty in 1995, um, the death penalty in New York had something called, uh, it was sort of like a hammer provision. Uh, what it said and what jurors were told is that if you unanimously agreed on life, the individual would be given life without parole. If you unanimous, and unanimously agreed on death, you'd be the individual would be given the death penalty. However, if you, the jurors split and it wasn't unanimous, the person would not be executed and would not get life without parole, but would get life with parole. And so it tells the jurors who are on the fence and and the, that they better go ahead and vote for death. And it gives a powerful argument or it gave a powerful argument to those in favor of death saying, if you don't vote for death, 
this guy's going to get out one day. Um, that statute was struck down in a case that arose out of Suffolk County uh, in 2004. But there was another case uh, out of Queens, uh, the what we refer to as the Wendy's case. Uh, that individual killed a number of people in a Wendy's restaurant, brutally murdered them. And the judge in that case told the jurors exactly what the law was, but added something that he thought would cure the problem and said, this individual is going to be given, if he's given life with parole, he'll be given consecutive life sentences so that he'll never see the light of day. There'll be no chance he'll actually get out, even though his sentence will be, you know, 75 to life or 100 to life, whatever it is. And that went to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals split 4-3, striking down the statute. But, you know, who argued for the Queen's DA's office to keep the death penalty was I can't believe you're admitting that it's our amazing partner Donna Aldea who should not have been arguing that position in my view but did so because she worked at the Queens County DA's office and folks out there some do actually believe in the death penalty um she she argued and if you people can actually go online and watch that argument that went on for hours. You don't have to watch all of it, but you can watch Donna argue that in any other case. She did a great job for her client, which was the district attorney's office in Queens, and we're very lucky to have stolen her away from them because she's been arguing for our clients ever since 2013. You did a service to society, Bruce. You poached Donna from the Queens DA's office where she'd be very powerful and, you know, um, convicting and incarcerating and keeping incarcerated right. and, and you brought her to what some people call the dark side i call it the Ugh, light side please please the and side you know, of life and she, go ahead for a moment here why is this relevant why are we talking about new york state well because new york right now is in the process of litigating through its penalty phase whether or not saifulo saipov should receive the death penalty this is the individual described as an Islamic extremist who killed eight people on the bike path in the west side in Manhattan with a U-Haul truck and injured probably, I don't remember exactly. A dozen others. Dozens others, yeah. Um, and he went to trial. Um, death penalty cases work this way. You have an innocent guilt phase. Twelve jurors decide whether or not the government is proving their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And if they decide yes and find that individual guilty, they have a second trial, which is like a normal trial. They put on evidence, they put on witnesses, they put on exhibits, both the defense and the government does. Um, and those same 12 jurors get to decide whether or not the person should receive execution, death as a punishment, or life without the possibility of parole. And that second stage of the trial, Saipov having been found guilty, is underway. Opening uh, testimony began uh, recently. And we'll see. All the, the difference, though, you described the New York statute as, you know, all having to be unanimous one way or another. Otherwise, it go to the judge. With federal death penalty cases, only a single juror has to find that there's sufficient mitigation um to basically do away with 
Right. One juror penalty. can vote so for life. And one the person... juror, you can have 11 jurors saying death is warranted and one juror say, I don't know. I, I don't want to do this. Right. So, uh, yes. So the opening statements were actually today. Uh, and they began with um, opening statements from the government, the prosecution and the defense. The prosecutor argued that Mr. Saipov was happy with what he had done. It made him happy that he's expressed no remorse to this day, that he continues to be dangerous uh, if he's not executed, that he could somehow communicate with his counterparts that are not incarcerated and indicated that a number of the victim's families were going to come and testify um, and argue for death. The defense, on the other hand, uh, and my, my, the, it was a very good line, said the individual, Mr. Saipov, will die in a federal prison alone um, one day, and the only thing that's left is the time and the manner. He'll either die of natural causes um, in a cell smaller than a parking space, or he will die at the hands of an executioner uh, on a gurney. And that either way, he is he is life is over, and that the judge actually wrote actually told the jurors that he would in fact spend twenty three hours a day in a cell by himself, that he'd be out for one hour by himself, and that he would give up or be deprived of all things that uh, are sweet to life, that make life sweet. And um, almost sounded like the judge was putting his finger on the scale there a little bit. Uh, interesting, interesting arguments that began. And the last, which note, the last death penalty in New York was uh, where an individual was actually executed was in 1963. A man named Eddie Lee Mays, 34, died in an electric chair in Ossining Prison, or Sing Sing as it's referred to. Uh, in upstate New York, and that was the last person executed in New York. So we'll see what happens with Mr. Saipov. Another, uh, I don't, I'm not. Uh, 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 <laughs> well, one more interesting thought. So okay, uh, it's it, it's interesting that this prosecution belongs entirely to Joe Biden, entirely to his administration. Right. Um, so I just want to note that they had the opportunity to. Uh, withdraw their intention, their notice of intention to seek right. death penalty, like yeah, they did for a number of other people, including one of our clients. Well, remember he he uh, campaigned. I think he was the only president to campaign on "I will end the federal death penalty." A president can't end state death penalty laws, but he can end the federal death penalty. He appointed. Uh, Merrick Garland to preside over those prosecutions, and he put a moratorium on federal executions, but he still fought, the, the Biden administration still fought to um, keep death on the table for the uh, defendant Saipov in this case, which is interesting, right, because well, not only for him, for Dylan Roof, who killed, um, I think, nine people in a church in right. South Carolina, and for uh, the marathon bomber in Boston, 
Uh, they successfully argued before the Supreme Court that the death sentence should be maintained. Those sentences, however, were um, issued or handed down by jurors under the Trump administration. Or bef- uh, this this case is the only case in the United States where the Biden administration has decided to seek the death penalty itself, not merely to defend a prior verdict from another um, from another court or another administration, but to actually seek it itself uh, without explanation. And I want to point out, I mean, <laughs> here's the problem with the death penalty, right? Um, there's many problems. Number one, if the person, regardless of whether the person gets the death penalty or gets life, as the defense lawyer pointed out in Saipov, they will die in prison. It's just a matter of when, right? And we know with death penalty executions that there are sometimes decades worth of appeals. So people end up sitting in on death row for 25 years. And a lot of those individuals grow and mature into men, right? Maybe they were arrested at 20 and suddenly they're 50-year-old sitting on death row about to be executed for a crime that they committed 30 years ago and they are different people. They're no longer that angry kid or that drug-addicted adult uh, who committed a wrong. Um, But the other problem with it, besides economic, because you do have decades worth of litigation, I think the average death penalty case costs taxpayers millions of dollars, at least like three to five million dollars, right? Where it actually costs less to keep the person incarcerated for the rest of their life. So there's a real economic argument here. But as we know, um, sometimes innocent people end up on death row, not just sometimes, according to a national um, Institute of Science study that did a very, very conservative figure. 4.1% of people on death row are actually innocent. And you currently have about 2,500 people on death row, which means uh, at least 102, because that number was very conservative, are scheduled to be executed, but are factually innocent. And I'm not alleging that Saipov is innocent, but you can't make a judgment call um, individually on each case because many of the individuals who end up getting exonerated, prosecutors were convinced that they were guilty. Um, And later on down the road, jurors have a change of heart and realize as investigations come down year after year after year through the defense lawyers that you know, basically start investigating a case to see whether or not um, there's anything worth arguing to overturn the sentence, uh, realize that, you know, they've had a change of heart. I've always thought from law school perspective as a student that the death penalty was unconstitutional because it violated the cruel and unusual punishment um, guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment. The Eighth Amendment. It, right. But right. but the problem with that is that one of the contemplations by the Supreme Court of the United States was the evolving standards of decency test, right? So they, they would look, well, what's our society think about that, right? Because if our society thought that was cruel and unusual punishment, they wouldn't dole out the death penalty. They wouldn't um, fine for a sentence of death. And that's propping up all over different states uh, across our country. But the problem with that argument is that the only jury that is allowed 
on that jury has to believe in the death penalty. So all of the other jurors, all of the other uh, citizens that serve jury duty, get called, get questioned, who don't believe in the death penalty, get automatically, basically automatically eliminated from those trials. So they never have a voice in whether or not not to execute that individual. So when you look at the evolving standards of decency test by the Supreme Court, it doesn't take into consideration all those hundreds of thousands and millions of individuals that would weigh in, but for the fact that they get eliminated. So, um, well, it, I, I mean, you, we, we've talked about the death penalty a lot in the show. Uh, we've had, we actually had an executioner on, uh, to discuss how brutal and barbaric the executions actually are and how they're sterilized when they're presented, uh, to the witnesses. Uh, and, We've talked about it a number of times. I just want to make one clarification. I said before that the judge made a comment that uh, if he's spared, he'll spend a, his cell, spend his life in a cell smaller than a parking space and lose access to everything that makes life sweet. That was actually the defense attorney. The judge indicated that he'd spend uh, a minimum of 23 hours a day in a cell at the administrative maximum facility in Colorado. Uh, so I don't want to misquote the judge there. Well, look, we have. Um, what do you? How do you think it's going to go? Um, that's a great question. Um, look, the jurors, as you noted, have already said that they could execute him or vote to execute him. Right. Uh, they, that's that's a prerequisite to getting on the jury. So it was, it's not exactly a cross section of people in Manhattan because Manhattan tends to be obviously a very liberal place where the death penalty is not very popular. After the death penalty was struck down in New York in 2005, there wasn't a clamoring to bring it back. It could have been fixed easily. Obviously, the death penalty is right now constitutional. Um, Thirteen executions were uh, carried out under the Trump administration in the last six months of his administration. So if New York State wanted to, it could reinstitute the death penalty easy enough. Uh, but, But they've chosen so far not to. Uh, so we'll wait and see. I I, well, I, I tend I to think I tend to think that he's they're going to sentence him to death, and I tend to think that for these reasons. One, as you mentioned, the jurors have already said that under the right circumstances they they can. So this jury is predisposed to um, sentence someone to death. Two, and choice is likely to convict, right? We right, forget right. that. Well, he but he look, he admitted his guilt. Yeah. Uh, the, the defense attorneys, there's no doubt that he did what uh, he was charged with. No doubt at all. But number two, uh, he lacks any remorse. And that's and that, one of the I, biggest factors a, that jury right. consider. That's and usually you, the, the, the factor that puts everyone towards right. so a death he, sentence. He has no chance, you know, you know, lacks remorse. And the government's going to allege and offer some evidence that he still poses a danger. Um, Future danger, to, even in prison, because he in, allegedly threatened guards and yeah, he he, he smashed was, his prison cell door while screaming about slitting the throats of guards. Um, and and not for nothing. I mean, I do think that the jurors that that made it to the final round um, might also, and I, I don't mean to pretend I know them personally, but. The fact that he is characterized as an Islamic extremist who's not, I don't think he's a citizen of the United States. No, he's not. And that, 
it, that, that probably does factor into their view. And, and you have to remember, I mean, New Yorkers are tend to be liberal, but we're, we were also the individuals who um, ended up with uh, being a target of terrorism over and over and over again. Um, you know, we've right. had two attacks in the World Trade Center, uh, subway uh, attacks, attempted bo- car bombings, and of course, 911. Right. So, you know, so we'll 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 see. We're going to take a break in just a minute. When we come back, I want to talk about um, another death penalty case. One in Colorado, uh, not Colorado. One in Oklahoma. Well, we have time. We've got Alvin Bragg. We've got the Trump book. We we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we're going to talk about a little bit about uh, Mr. Glossop, who is uh, on, currently on death row in Oklahoma, maintains his innocence to your point earlier, and there's actually a significant amount of evidence that indicates that he might very well be innocent. Even the Attorney General in Oklahoma has uh, said that they're going to take another look at this before they set an execution date. We'll be back right after a few messages and some news and weather and whatnot. We'll see you in a few minutes. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. I'm Aida Leisenring, and I'm here with Bruce Barquette. And what a bizarre coincidence. Well, coincidence or... or breaking news. We well, just, it's breaking news to us because we've been working all day and didn't so, look at the I know. News. We, had, we had federal deadlines on, on our own case, which was at one a death point... death penalty case a month ago. Yeah. Uh, literally but, um, a month ago. We, we just spent the last 21 minutes talking about uh, whether or not... Uh, say Fulo Saipov, who murdered eight people on the West Side Highway bike path with his U-Haul truck. He's described as an Islamic extremist, will get the death sentence uh, doled out by the 12 jurors that found him guilty. They now begin the second trial uh, to determine whether or not he deserves to spend the the rest of his life in prison alive until he dies of natural causes or through um, execution. And apparently today, an individual, his name is Mr. Soar. Wang Wang Soar. Wang Soar, 62 years old, in a U-Haul, mowed down eight people in Brooklyn near the Metropolitan Detention Center. and uh, it's it's a bizarre. But exactly, he took a U-Haul truck, went up on the sidewalk, struck apparently struck eight individuals, bicyclists and pedestrians, and uh, was eventually stopped and has been arrested. Two of the people are in critical condition. Um, on, on bizarre timing. There's no right. indication that there's any connection to the Saipov trial, but you know that the lawyers for Saipov. Right. What would you raise do? This tomorrow. What, what oh. would you do? You you've just had a guilty verdict, which you expected, on your client, who's an Islamic extremist who mowed down and killed eight people and injured dozens of others on a U-Haul, um, in a U-Haul, excuse me, um, and you're a, literally just started opening arguments, and this breaking news occurs. Same, almost same exact kind of crime down to the type of, you know, van 
this individual was driving, a U-Haul, and the numbers of people that he injured and killed. Right. I, I, look, obviously, they're going to raise it with the judge. They're going to ask at a bare minimum that each juror be polled individually to determine what they found out, what they learned overnight, whether or not that would affect their ability to remain fair and impartial. Right, because uh, a juror the judge might say, will, like, I was on the fence, but now here's another crazy person who just tried to kill a dozen people right. the same exact way. We need to send a right. message. And I, and I think the judge will tell the jurors, and maybe they will, I'd certainly ask for this, that there's no indication at all that Mr. Soar had any connection at all to Mr. Saipov or that there was any relationship between these two crimes other than that they were similar um but it could be so the family of mr soar um who just mowed down eight people in brooklyn with a u-haul um apparently has a history of violence and severe mental illness and everyone who was close to him knew it he served 17 months for stabbing his brother previously in las vegas and he was homeless, I think. Um, and so I'm wondering if by chance he read about the Saipov trial and as a symptom of his mental illness, copied the crime or was inspired or. In that way, it may very well be related. And he was copied. It's a bizarre crime, right? You don't, you don't see this kind of uh, deliberate conduct very often. Uh, the only other incident where I can think of where someone deliberately did that um, was in, in France a number of years ago with a tractor trailer. And occasionally you'll have some crazy person will run up on the curb. But this was this is almost too close to be coincidences, uh, and I think you're right. I think that the person probably well, I don't know. It will be interesting to see whether or not the person uh, actually acted because of the death penalty version or phase of the Saipov trial starting today, using a similar tool in a similar way. Uh, but let's get back to. Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't think the federal government will be seeking the death penalty on this man's case if he has such apparent history of mental illness. Um, but who knows? Right. Um, well, he hasn't killed anybody yet. Right. So he's not eligible for the death penalty yet. Uh, eight people were hurt from what we can what I can read. And two of them are in critical condition. Uh, I think the federal government doesn't get involved in this unless there is something more than just a regular, say regular, but an ordinary murder has sure. to be done in furtherance of terrorism or robbery or narcotics or something like that. Uh, it can't just be that he killed somebody. Uh, if that's the case, then uh, individuals do not, um, federal government does not prosecute basic murders. They prosecute murders connected to other, other, um, <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Mr. Gloss that we that we teased at the beginning of or at the end of the last segment. Uh, he's a gentleman in Oklahoma. So, and, and when we talked about, obviously, some states authorize the use of the death penalty. Others don't. New York doesn't. Texas does. Oklahoma does. 
um, and so forth, Oklahoma is number two in executions. And their executions, there was a moratorium, moratorium for a while uh, because they couldn't get the right kind of drugs that were effective and um, didn't cause harm. But well, didn't cause pain. pain. They're intended to cause harm, right? They're right. intended to cause death. The, the problem with the drugs is that they were being misused and that they were potentially causing a great deal of pain. Uh, which is not supposed to be part of the death penalty, despite some people's thinking otherwise. Right. So Richard Glossop is, you know, you can go to the Innocence Project website. He's uh, all over it, and he's got a huge um, base of supporters saying, you know, adamant that he's innocent, obviously including his lawyers, who unearthed 29 new witnesses and experts who came forward, signed affidavits under oath, and were ready to testify to say that this man who was on death row for, has been on death row for maybe 24 years, um, even though everyone agreed another man, Justin Sneed, actually committed the murder, um, is innocent. Um, and his conviction was primarily based on statements made by Justin Sneed and Multiple independent witnesses locked up with Snead heard him say that the murder was a robbery gone wrong, carried out by himself and his girlfriend, and that Glossop had nothing to do with it. At least one witness heard him brag about framing Richard Glossop. Um, and another witness who grew up with him said he had a history of meth use and burglary in Texas, and then he was known to be violent. He would steal anything. Um, so why does it matter? Because this year... Richard Glossop was slated to be the second person to be executed in Oklahoma. But lo and behold, thank God, they've slowed down uh, that execution and launched a probe into his case. And I believe the attorney general has just appointed an independent counsel to conduct a comprehensive investigation of his murder conviction and his death sentence. So hopefully... Hopefully, they'll uncover that their prosecution was flawed and they've convicted an innocent man who spent 23 years in jail and on death row. One of the things that the attorney general in uh, Oklahoma said that really bothered me was that they wanted to be sure that there's, quote, confidence in the system. Um, and the reason why that bothers me is that we know the um, system, forgive me, is a train wreck in almost every respect, especially when it comes to the death penalty. It's arbitrary, it's capricious, uh, it ends up convicting innocent people. And I, it, I really find it offensive that the prosecutor here is concerned about how, well, we may better use this guy as a you know, an example of how we can be fair so we can go ahead and continue to execute dozens of others uh, along the way. It, it, it is, tr it, it shouldn't be about that. Obviously, we want the society to be have confidence in the system, but you don't conduct investigations so that people will think it's the system's fair. You conduct investigations so that you get it right, so that you're not executing somebody who's innocent, so you're not having 
a person on death row who did not commit the crime. That should be your concern. Not that the public thinks a system that's a train wreck is actually working correctly or working properly because it's not. So that sorry, but that's my little rant. Well, now would be a, a good time to segue into mm. prosecutors and uh, allegations of misconduct. And I don't ever like to say I was right or I was on to something. Or wait, I, I do love to say that. You um, were. You were. But I, I think it was because the first two things, we talked about this last week, and we're going to talk about it a little more in depth now or follow up. But there were there were two prosecutorial issues that were underway. The first one was um, Joseph Franco, former detective, NYPD, was actually indicted by Alvin Bragg's office for perjury in at least five cases where individuals were uh, falsely arrested and charged and convicted and probably in some cases did some jail time for allegations that did not occur. Um, and they were wrongful convictions because Joseph Franco lied under oath and perjured himself. As a result of this, this was a huge, there was a huge ripple effect and 500, about 500 convictions were overturned um, all over New York and in the Bronx in Manhattan in Brooklyn. And his trial was finally starting uh, and it's rare for a police officer to be charged, indicted, and prosecuted for this kind of conduct. Um, but nonetheless, jury had been selected, and Judge Robert Mandelbaum threw out the case after prosecutors admitted that they had, for the third time, failed to turn over records that they're required to share with the lawyers. And I'm guessing that the documents they were required to share by the lawyers uh, were required pursuant to the new discovery laws that we asked for as the defense bar uh, to prevent wrongful convictions, to prevent gamesmanship, to prevent hiding evidence that might be pertinent to the defendant's guilt or innocence, but often innocence, uh, that basically requires the DA's office to turn everything over that's related to the matter that's in their possession, right? And I think what's happened, and I was saying this before, um, and, and I and I don't want to defend prosecutors, but why not? You know, I, I I respect so many of them, and I think what's happened is the job, the discovery law, is so onerous that a lot of prosecutors aren't able to meet these discovery deadlines. Cases get dismissed as a result of that, and not for nothing. Defense lawyers get inundated with tens of thousands of pages of documents that are actually not relevant and not related to the case that you have to sift through in 30 days so you can file motions that you must file well, under a deadline. Let, 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 let's not complain. I mean, the, the uh, old discovery laws in New York were uh, antiquated. Totally. Uh, from from the dark ages, you didn't know what witnesses were going to say until literally the jury had been picked. You would dump those thousands of pages between jury selection and opening statements. We're expected to digest them in that short amount of time. That was um, an outrageous system. And yes, this system needs some tinkering. But the idea that somehow providing to the defense that which the prosecution has 
is an insurmountable burden right. is some is a proposition I don't agree with. I, uh, I guess I I guess my point was last week I I said let's see how these discovery uh, failures occurred. Was it in good faith? Was it in bad faith? Did she have Stephanie Minog, the lead prosecutor in the matter? Did she have the materials and make a decision not to turn them over, or was this inadvertent? And what the whole office is basically saying is they're angry at their boss, Alvin Bragg, for demoting her. Um, they're saying that the non-disclosures were in good faith, were inadvertent, um, possibly a result of the onerous requirements of the new discovery laws, and that the DA's office should have fought harder to undo Judge Mandelbaum's ruling that the matter should be dismissed. Um, and that's where we are with that. Um, yeah, th and that th there really is quite a, a uproar from the line assistants um, in Manhattan because they feel as though if this individual who they believe was acting in good faith and made a mistake or wasn't able to get all the material in time, it's thrown under the bus the way she was. And she was demoted, removed from her position. The case was dismissed. It's all over the papers. It's an incredible, um, incredibly humiliating experience for the lawyer. Uh, and, and the information that wasn't turned over may not have been um, helpful. Right, helpful to the defense. It just may right. have been paperwork. Even the defense said that. They said, we have it, and we haven't made a determination of whether or not any of this is helpful. So that that's one problem with the Manhattan DA's office. Another problem with the Manhattan DA's office that you were right about is Mark <laughs> Pomerantz um, wrote a book about um, Trump and how um, he thought that Trump should have been prosecuted by the Manhattan DA's office. And real right. quick, Mr. Pomerantz is an attorney, extremely well-respected, was the former chief of the Southern District um, Criminal Division, federal prosecutor, was in private practice, was hired by Bragg specifically to investigate and prosecute Trump, and quit last spring, wrote a blistering letter that he published uh, saying that Bragg wasn't being aggressive enough or wasn't following the law and thought that Trump should have been indicted. And he and the other lead prosecutor in the case quit, wrote a book. And you raised the question last week when we were talking about this, is this a problem? Because the grand jury proceedings are secret. They're not supposed to be disclosed by anybody, let alone the prosecutor who's presenting the evidence. And it's a fair point. On, right. And he went on 60 Minutes and we chatted about him last week. And lo and behold, uh, New York Law Journal, I don't remember how many days later, headline, Pomerantz could get disbarred over Trump book, Association of Prosecuting Attorneys claim. Right. And so what happened here is that a, a group of prosecutors in this association, I don't know how large it is, um, filed, I believe they might have filed an ethics complaint or their intent to do so, claiming that there's some serious ethical issues, potential criminal issues about disclosing information um, that you were able to obtain pursuant to grand jury subpoenas within your office during a proceeding that's supposed to remain secret until the district attorney says it no longer is or the court says it no longer is. 
And here's the thing. Mark Pomerantz is a really intelligent individual. So it's not like he wrote this book and didn't think about that as a possibility. But here are some quotes from his book, I guess, that address that. He said, I am comfortable that this book will not prejudice any investigation or prosecution of Donald Trump. In addition, he said, I do have some angst about having described the inner dialogue of the investigation. Prosecutors do not usually kiss and tell about the work they do. Um, and I guess Trump hired Joe Tacopino already uh, to well, represent him in a defamation suit. That was for uh, the that was for the um, woman who said that Trump raped him, raped her in like a dressing room of some department he store. You mentioned that not in reference to this. So may maybe he's in addition to that looking to sue Pomerantz for defamation. But Pomerantz said, I think he was weighing the pros and cons about his risk. He probably thinks he revealed nothing that uh, wouldn't be uh, available through a Freedom of Information Act or that was already known, that was already in the media. Um, I'm sure he's smart enough to have figured out what's important, but he weighed that risk because that's a huge risk. Even if you haven't violated any ethics laws, if an ethic, ethics complaint is launched against you, you're going to have problems. You're going to have to hire an attorney. You're going to spend uh, tens and tens of thousands of dollars defending your basically your your license to practice law. Sure. And it's, a, it's a it's a felony. It's right. a felony to disclose grand jury material. Pomeranz said. In response, and it's the Association of, of Prosecuting Attorneys who wrote a seven-page letter uh, alleging the uh, potential violations. Pomeran said, I remain convinced that the publication of my book is legal, ethical, and in the public interest. Um, so we'll wait and see how this turns out. But it certainly is ironic that the person who is kind of ringing the bell and screaming about how uh, Trump should should have been indicted, may have himself, in doing that, put um, the crosshairs on him. But even uh, it can, and it got, it's worse than you become Pomeran, obsessed. I'm sorry, you become obsessed with the hunt and the goal. Sometimes yeah. you forget your you know logical, rational kind of intuition to say, let it go, live your life. Don't spend the rest of well, your years. Uh, you know, I think we should have uh, Mr. Pomerantz on. We know him. Um, he's a friend of sorts, not really a friend, but a colleague. So we'll see if we can do that. Uh, we'll be back next week with another um, episode of Crime and Justice Radio. Always fun speaking with you, Miss Lyson Ring. We'll see you next Same week. Same here, Bruce. Same here. <laughs> The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.